Jean Renoir famously remarked that a director makes only one film in their lifetime. Then they break it up and make it again. Perhaps Renoir had been observing his father, the Impressionist master Auguste, who, during his lifetime, painted over 4,000 canvases. But no matter the canvas, Auguste's subject was always the same. Light. Something similar might be said of Federico Fellini. And given the enormous influence Fellini's films had on the likes of Ingmar Bergman, Stanley Kubrick, Woody Allen, Bob Fosse, Martin Scorsese, Terry Gilliam, Pedro Almodovar, David Lynch, Tim Burton, Guillermo del Toro, Terence Malick, Alexander Payne, Alfonso Cuaron, and Paolo Sorrentino. Perhaps Renoir's claim could be extended to directors breaking apart and then remaking other directors' films. Let us begin with Fellini. Born in 1920 and growing up in Rimini on Italy's Adriatic coast, he started out as a cartoonist before establishing himself as a gag writer and then by his mid-twenties a fully-fledged screenwriter. By 1950 he was directing, or at least for his debut, co-directing with Alberto Latuada, the romantic drama Lights of Variety. Focusing on a troupe of vaudeville performers travelling from one small town to another, it already contained motifs that would become Fellini's hallmark. Fantasy, performance and the solace of a circus. So much so that when, in 1972, as Fellini announced his 14th feature film, he declared, I started to make a picture many years ago and I'm still making that picture. The picture he appeared to be remaking yet again premiered in Rome on December 18, 1973, opened the Cannes Film Festival on May 9, 1974, and on April 8 the next year, earned Fellini his fourth Oscar for Best Foreign Film, Amacord. Fellini's cinema was so innovative, so unique, so visionary, the dictionary now contains a word to describe it. Fellini-esque. Always visually flamboyant, his films rarely, if ever, adhere to classical structure of storytelling, which means he often avoided cause and effect plots, resisted narrative closure to deliver ambiguous endings, and rather than centering his stories on single individuals, often focused instead on groups of people whom we cannot really describe as characters, but caricatures. All the while, Fellini intertwined the real and the imaginary to deliver sensuous, picaresque, yet intellectually rigorous ruminations on such subjects as masculinity, spirituality, sexuality, identity, creativity, history, mythology, media, and the subconscious. Fellini's canvas was so big, so wide, so all-encompassing, that watching his films, you sometimes felt he was depicting all of life's complexities and contradictions. I am completely agree with all the obstacles and with all the enemies who are between me and what I want to do. I see that they cooperate. They are, uh, they are in a providential manner. They help me to do exactly what, uh, what I want. Because if I have not to fight, it is in the fighting that I can see better what I want to do. It is in the, in the friction, do you say? Friction. friction that scene become more clear. It become more clear just because it uh, runs the danger to be far, to go away from me. And uh, all the nostalgia and, and all the love that I am obliged to put in this danger make that things much more uh, 
Amacourt is often regarded as a semi-autobiographical account of Fellini's formative years. But, upon closer inspection, it is more an unconventional reminiscence, a synthetically historical description of Rimini in the 1920s and 30s. In other words, a poetic reflection of life in Mussolini's fascist Italy. More of which later. Right now, let us focus on the title. Like so many things in Fellini's life, the title is made up, a word he fabricated to suggest the phrase in Rimini's local dialect, mi ricordo, meaning I remember. In that respect, Amacord belongs to the small but seminal set of films made by directors charting their own formative years. François Truffaut's The 400 Blows, Andre Tarkovsky's Mirror, Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander, John Borman's Hope and Glory, Woody Allen's Radio Days, Louis Malle's Au Revoir les Enfants, Terence Davies' The Long Day Closes, Spike Lee's Crooklyn, Marjan Satrapi's Persepolis, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, and most recently, Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir. The, uh, the thing that struck me about the main character, Tony, in my story is that he has been forced to rate, to be raised and to come to terms with the incredible st struggles that his family's going through at that time and all his peers at school as well. And this very cruel, very raw, you know, um, Sorry, I'm not expressing myself very well. Um... Although Fellini was a self-confessed liar, when he was making Amacord, I wonder whether he was telling the truth about remaking the same picture. If so, when did he first make it? While elements of Fellini's recurring interests were on display from as early as Lights of Variety, it is really in his third picture, Ivitilone, that we see the first stirrings of Amacord. Released in 1953, Ivitilone offers a loose account of Fellini's late adolescence and early adulthood in Rimini. And just as Amacord uses a vernacular for its title, so too does Ivitilone. The term is a corruption of the word Vudelone, which itself is a cross between the Italian words for beef and veal. And in Fellini's film, he uses it to refer to his gallery of immature, listless men who have yet to, or worse, refuse to grow up. Again, more of which later. But for now, let us revisit what Renoir said about directors remaking the same film. Given the limited number of stories, could we not extend Renoir's remark to directors taking, breaking and remaking other directors' films? Ivitiloni not only inspired Fellini to make a quasi-remake of it with Amacord, it also inspired other filmmakers to remake his original, or at least storytellers offering treatments of their own formative years. Ivitilone ends with its narrator Moraldo, played by Franco Interlenghi, leaving Rimini because, if he is ever to make something of his life, he needs to get away. Skip forward ten years, and in Britain you have Billy Lyre, John Schlesinger's comical account of a young man yearning to escape his humdrum life in the fictitious town of Stradhorton, a stand-in for the Leeds from which Billy Lyre's author, Keith Waterhouse, had fled in order to realise his ambition of becoming a writer. Idle jack and novel by. Bill Fisher. No, not another by William Fisher. William L. Fisher. William D. L. Fisher. William D. Lashwood Fisher. William Fingal O'Flaherty Wheels Fisher, a critical biography. 
Skip forward another 10 years and you have George Lucas recalling the balmy summer nights he spent cruising the Strip in 1962 Modesto. Like Evitiloni, American graffiti ends with a character leaving home. Kurt Henson, played by Richard Dreyfuss, flying off to college. Nine years later, in 1982, Barry Levinson's diner had a group of young men hanging out over the Christmas week in 1959. While none of them leave their hometown of Baltimore, one of them does embark on his own journey, marriage. But despite that threshold, these men, just like Fellini's Vudelone, would prefer to avoid life's responsibilities. I don't know what it is about the gravitational pull of Planet Fellini, but each decade seems to attract another variation. Because in 1993, Richard Linklater gave us Dazed and Confused, another semi-autobiographical reminiscence, this time of Linklater's graduating from high school in Austin, Texas. Named after a Led Zeppelin song, the film ends with four friends departing for Houston to buy tickets to an Aerosmith concert. All right, all right, all right. Hey man, you still driving into Houston in the morning to get those Aerosmith tickets? Oh, you damn right. Evening, ladies. Ow! Nice. You need me to pick you up a couple? Yeah, two. Cool. Rock music also played an enormous part in both Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous and John Carney's Sing Street. And then, two years ago, Greta Gerwig offered her own account of the need to leave her hometown of Sacramento. All those respective titles carefully considered the time and the place the storytellers had to leave in order to forge their own place in the world. And that means authenticity from everything from the clothes, decor and music, right down to the particular slang, all used to evoke their hometowns. So much so that the fictitious Stradhorton and very real Modesto, Baltimore, Austin, Dublin and Sacramento all become not just a character, but the antagonist that compels the artist as a young person out into the world. But what distances Amacord from all those titles is the lengths to which Fellini went not to recreate his hometown of Rimini. While not one single frame of Evie Deloney was shot there, practically none of Amacord was either. Instead, production designer Danilo Donati painstakingly created in Cinecita an approximation of what existed only in Fellini's mind. It is also deliberately inaccurate that in Amacord, Rimini is actually renamed Borgo. What we must appreciate is that the time and the place in Amacord is a paradox, a contradiction between the factual and the fictive. A way of understanding that is to recognise that there are two eyes in Fellini, each one representing a different view of the world. The first eye belongs to Fellini's early career, when he was part of the neorealist movement that began just as World War II ended and, for the few short years it flourished, revolutionised the way cinema was both created and considered. The second eye in Fellini began to blink open in the early 50s, bringing with it a wholly different, hitherto unimagined, cinematic perspective. Ivitalone, La Strada, Knights of Cabiria, La Dolce Vita, Eight and a Half, Juliet of the Spirits, Satyricon, The Clans, Orchestra Rehearsal, City of Women, and The Ship Sails On, Ginger and Fred, Voices of the Moon. Each time Fellini remade a new film, it was more idiosyncratic, more recognisable, more reflective, more revealing than the last. Here is Martin Scorsese talking to Charlie Rose just a week after Fellini's death on October the 31st, 1993. I, I tried to show my, my young daughter um, eight and a half. Uh, she's now 17. At the age of 16, I said, I have to show you eight and a half because it's very important to me uh, in 1963 when I first saw it. 
But then I realized that I couldn't just show her eight and a half. It would be, it wouldn't mean anything mm -hmm. in terms of style. I had to else. start somewhere else. So I started yeah. with La Strada, which is the film I first saw yeah. of Fellini's, and then showed her La Strada, Knights of Cabiria, La Dolce Vita, then eight and a half. And next mm -hmm. I'll show her Satyricon and move on up. So you can see the work and, and the, the journey of uh, one artist on using film and cinema yeah. as, as his tool. Like all Fellini's later films, Amacord was shot on the huge stage five in Cinecita. That is, with the exception of the comical sequences that involve Rimini's Grand Hotel. The first details a glamorous woman, Gradisca, played by Magali Noel, who was the subject of many a fantasy of the local men. Remaining indifferent to their attentions, it was long rumoured that she had given up her virginity to a visiting nobleman, who had lured her to the comfort of the Grand Hotel's penthouse suite. The second local legend involved Biscayne, the town's inveterate liar, played by Gennaro Ombra, who persistently claimed that one evening he had been invited to the very same suite to make love to 28 virgins, all hosted by a visiting sultan. Co-written by Tony Naguera, the script for Amacord called for a hotel with a facade five stories high. Too large even for Cinecita's sprawling backlot. But instead of relocating to Rimini, where the real thing could be filmed, Fellini took his crew south of Rome to the Paradiso Solmare in Anzio. Why? Amacord was never meant to be an accurate remembrance of the past. Consider the opening sequence where the townsfolk gather in the square for the lighting of the festive bonfire. After it, the town's prominent lawyer, played by Luigi Rossi, addresses the camera to give us an historical overview. Here is a version dubbed into English. We are a blend of Romans and Celts. We are the coalescence of jollity and tenacity, starting with the poet Dante. To Pascoli D'Annunzio, numerous laureates lent their genius in eulogizing this land and extol with reverence our efforts and integrity in the arts, science, law and political... <coughs> Barbarian. That raspberry not only undercuts any claims the lawyer has as a town's historian, it also illustrates that nothing in Ambercourt is to be taken at face value. Consider the film's most celebrated sequence, when again the entire town gathers together, but this time in boats, so they can witness the passing of the great ocean liner, the Rex. Absolutely no effort was made to render the ocean liner in any way real. Instead, the spectacle is not the size of the boat, but rather its artifice. From there, we notice that the townspeople, all gathered in skiffs, are not floating on anything resembling water, but instead, black plastic sheets billed by wind machines to simulate the Adriatic waves. It's all so false, you have to wonder why. So think about it. Amacord is set in 1930s Italy, and what we see is not so much an illusion as delusion. A time when the population fell for the dream promised by Mussolini's fascists to make Italy great again. 99% of our citizens are already subscribed to our cause. The youth movement posts to 4,000 complegionaires and daughters of fascism. And as mayor, I can vote for the royalty, only we need funds to repair the harbour. It's a magic, joyous enthusiasm that makes us youthful and at the same time immortal. All of us are being invigorated by this fascist vitality and the, the same. Yeah, well, all I can say is that Mussolini's really got two of those you-know-whats. Fellini was never regarded as a political filmmaker. Certainly not in the way Pier Paolo Pasolini, Francesco Rossi, Bernardo Bertolucci or Elio Petri foregrounded 
Their critiques in films such as Akatone, Salvatore Giuliano, The Conformist, or Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. But it would have been far too easy for Fellini to depict the fascists as ignorant thugs. Instead, he wanted to look deeper, and he did so by going for the superficial, which is the reason why the production design is the key to the film's meaning. Amacord extends Ivitilone's examination of men who refuse to grow up. But where Ivitilone depicted masculine malaise, Amacord depicts an entire country with its moral, spiritual, political and historical development arrested in its tracks. Most stories about childhood and youth, indeed the past, come draped in nostalgia, a yearning for the days of yore. Certainly not Amacord. I mean, who yearns for the revival of Mussolini, Hitler and Franco? Who wants the return of fascism? Music